thank you, Rito, for coming on to the latest episode of the podcast. Rita Ringer founded Sam, now known as Rebecco Sam, in 1995. The company was then sold to Rebecco, after which he launched Glow Balance Bank, which is a sustainability-focused private bank. Uh, Rito, the first question that I wanted to ask you is, you worked at, I think, UBS, Swiss Re and Von Tobel before Sam. How was your experience of mainstream banking? Yeah, obviously that not that uh, you know exciting because I started my own company in '95. So um, you know I like the markets very much because that's something which is really uh, you know new every day. I like sustainability very much. So when I worked for Swiss Re, for Fontobel, for UBS, for me it was so obvious you know that that should come together. But there were no initiatives uh, on 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 the banking side. So that's why I created. Uh, you know, sustainable asset management. And, and already at that time, the name was still available, which gives you an indication that there was not a big interest in the market for such a concept. Yeah. And what were your first experiences with sustainable <clears throat> investing? Was this something that you were trying to do perhaps on the side in your personal time, even when you were working at mainstream banks? Uh yeah, to some extent, I was the founder of a, of, a, of a fund for the University of Zurich. So we as students, we we, uh, we had an investment fund that we managed together. And, and, and I was uh, one of the founders and we were looking for, for funding from the banks. And so Credit Suisse funded that, uh, you know, students investment fund with 50,000. And so we had some money to, to invest. And then we had an investment committee. And obviously, you know, green topics were, were important then. So the, maybe those were the first, uh, you know, steps in that regard. When was that that you launched your um, first sustainable investment fund as a student? Then? Uh, maybe that was uh, in, the, in the late uh, 80s, early 90s. So that's fairly early. Um, <laughs> why did you decide to launch sustainable asset management then? I mean, it was not a decision I took uh, one day. You know, it was something that really grew uh, in my head. And, and, and it was kind of obvious for me that this, this has a huge potential. And that's why I started working a business plan. And then I was lucky enough to find investors that thought, okay, that's a good idea. I will, I will become an investor in that concept. And then I had 2 million uh, Swiss francs, uh, 1 million from, from two uh, investors. And then I had money to, to rent an office, to, to find, uh, you know, uh, partners. And, and that's how it started. But obviously, you know, in 95, we were, we were way too early. So what was that like being so early? Was it, first of all, actually, how did you staff the company? Did you find a lot of people who bought into this idea at the time? Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, if you look at the people that started uh, Sam in the 95 with, with me or, or joined the company later on, many, many of them have become entrepreneurs in the sustainability field. So it seems that we attracted really the early movers, uh, people that were really looking for something new. Uh, and there were, you know, not that many options. So maybe Sam was one of the very few companies for people that has an interest. And, and, and so on one side, it was, it was easy to find the convinced, uh, you know, people, but it's very difficult to convince people because it was so early. 
Yeah. And did you understand what you were getting into when you started that company? No, you never know that. I mean, I, I started with, uh, I mean, I started this company, Sam, with 28. I started the bank with 48. And luckily, I did not know what it means to start a bank. I mean, I have more experience now, 20 years more experience, but it's always, you know, it's always a journey where you have so many unknowns. And, and luckily, you know, you don't know it. And I think one of the most important, uh, you know, characteristics of an entrepreneur is is naivety if you lose your naivety then you lose your curiosity you lose you know innovation so i think the naivety is is a very important element of successful entrepreneurs that's an interesting approach to take considering how much fund managers like to talk about their years of investment experience do you find that goes against the grain a little bit with the industry you're working in I mean, I was I was working for Swiss Re in the investment department in the in the eighties, and I think their markets. I mean, that sounds a bit uh, overstated now, but markets were predictable. And these days, I mean, the economy, the technology, the digitization is not predictable. So also, if you're an investor, you know the world is changing so rapidly. Uh, we are being disrupted uh, on a societal level, on an environmental level, on a on a geopolitical level. So I think it's it the markets have changed, and how you have to look at investments have changed. So in that respect, I would say a big chunk of openness, a big chunk of being you know uh, curious, is probably crucial in order to to generate a, a good return in the future in in a world that is changing so fast. And when you say you value naivety, is part of that, that if you knew how much effort it was going to be, you might not have wanted to start a company in the first place? Uh, no, I mean, yeah, you, you don't know that. And, and, and you pay a price yeah. and you pay a high price. But on the other side, you have to be very agile because, you know, I did a business plan. I have an economics degree. So I'm, you know, I, I, I for me, it's very important to have an idea where you go. Uh, so I bring it to paper and I have shareholders, so I have to write something, uh, you know, that they can work with, but, but, you know, I know this paper will, will never turn out, uh, you know, uh, to become reality. Reality will always be different. So you really need a team that is very agile and, and has to be very, very open. And I think that's, that's what you underestimate, you know, that you have to take a different direction than what you had in mind. Yeah, and I will come on a little bit a lot more on to what you're doing with Glow Balance, but just still on the topic of your kind of earlier career, I know you said that Swiss Re was a big early investor, you've said before. How did you find investors in the early days? Was this difficult to convince them it was something that could actually make them money? Um, that was really the tough part to find investors because in the in 95, you know, sustainable investing was 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 unheard and and uh you know people thought about okay that is really expensive because the environmental you know development is is very cost intense so we will lose money so that was really tough and there was no market for that so what we had to do is really to find the early 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 movers of of, of that thinking and swiss free was our first customer at sam so the reason for that was Swiss Re, they fully understood the climate uh, issue already then. 
they had people working on the climate issues and it was part of their business model and so on. So they knew that there is something coming and maybe they would wanted to be part of, of, of something that is developing, maybe to grab some, some insight, grab some experience. So I don't think it was the financial incentive to have a good return, uh, but it was more the, the knowledge that they wanted to gain uh, with, with, uh, with people working on sustainable investing, probably. I think it's interesting as well that you highlight an insurance company there because people talk a lot about how much finance companies need to learn from tech companies. Do you think maybe finance companies need to be learning a lot more from insurance companies and maybe the long-term mentality? I mean, when it comes to climate issues, for sure, yeah. I mean, especially for reinsurance companies because they have to deal with with many, many uh, effects of, of global warming uh hurricanes uh you know other catastrophes uh and so they have their models they have analysts they have a lot of data if i go at bahnhofstrasse at the big uh, banks they don't understand uh, climate change yet they have to build it up but but a company like swiss re or or zurich or munich re they know what they're talking about. They have data since, I don't know, 20 years. They have teams, they have algorithms. So in that respect, I think we can learn a lot from, from them. Okay. And you've launched, obviously, various funds at Sustainable Asset Management. I think you launched Sustainable Water Fund was one of the early ones. When you were launching these funds, and some of them were presumably asset classes, that there wasn't much on the ground there already, were there ideas you had that, you know, was maybe a bit touch and go, and then they turned out to be very successful? Were there also ideas that you thought were great that turned out to not be so good? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you when you are a pioneer, then it's like uh, if you're a, a skier and you have, uh, you know, a hill of full of snow and nobody else, you know, was, was uh, skiing down that, that hill. So it's great. You, if you have an idea, probably you're the first one have, having this idea. So there are a lot of opportunities. Uh, and uh, I mean, luckily, you know, many of the fund ideas that, that we had are still existing today. The water fund, the climate fund, the smart material fund, healthy living fund, and so on. But we also, you know, tried to do a long short fund at that time. That that really did not work out. Our first uh, private equity funds were, you know, not really successful. Uh, yeah, there were some some uh, you know developments that that did not turn out uh, as expected as well. I mean, with the private equity one, was that perhaps there wasn't the transparency at that point in time, or was it the private equity market wasn't big enough? Because there are kind of private equity ESG funds now, aren't they? So maybe it's something that would be more successful today. Yeah, I mean, the team that did this private equity fund, uh, they they spun off when we sold to Robico. Uh, they are highly, highly successful. It's it's called, uh, they're Emerald. I don't know whether you know them, but they're also based here in Zurich. Uh, Gina Domonic is, is their, their head. And so they're very successful with that. But I mean, the start was, was very tough because sustainability was new. And then we come with a new asset class that is a bit more risky than public equities. So that's a further and, and even higher hurdle. So we were, we were just too early. And it was very interesting when we did the fundraising for the private equity fund, we, we thought, okay, we go to the pension funds here in Switzerland. But uh, I mean, there was no no um, positive reception uh, from here. 
So we ended with corporates. Corporates started to invest in the fund because they also wanted to learn, uh, you know, from the companies. They wanted to have access to the deal flow. So it was it was really interesting how that developed. And still today, in in, in this fund, uh, it's mostly corporates that they acquire. So Microsoft is an investor, uh, as an example, Henkel, uh, and, and really uh, corporates that would like to have access to to those companies. I think it's then an interesting point you make there as well, that if you want to be a pioneer, maybe it's easier to focus on one big change at once. Is that something that you would maybe advise people who are looking to launch the next generation of business models, that if you want to make a really big change, then for you, it was easier to do sustainable listed equities before people could popularize sustainable private markets so much? Uh, yeah, that's always the risk. If you if you're a pioneer and if you're at the early development of a, of a let's say new technology or a new kind of mega trend, that you have so many ideas that you uh, risk to to get distracted. And so I always tell my daughter, who is also very ambitious and would like to do five things at the same time. If you chase three mice, then you will not get one because that's too much. So you better focus on one and then take the other one. Uh, I think that that's very important. And even today, where it is being much more competitive than I would say 20 years ago, uh, because you can uh, have easier access to capital uh, and then technology is much further. So I think today it's still more important to be focused uh, because it's so competitive out there. Yeah. And then going a little bit forward in time, um, why did you decide to sell sustainable asset management? Mm, I did not decide to sell. I was forced uh, to sell. And that was was a lesson for for my entrepreneurial life, you know, uh, really to be very careful whom you select as a shareholder. Because uh, we had a shareholder, it was an insurance company, and they, they had uh, financial problems, and they had to sell their, their private equity stakes, and then we were one of their investments, and they were a big shareholder in, in SAM. So there was a, you know, we were forced to sell the company because of this, this shareholder. Uh, against our will, and that was that was that was really tough, you know, to go to the market and look for a buyer. If you if you and we were just you know taking off, so it was not really our intention to sell, but you know we had no choice. And and finally, I think we found a very very good uh, partner with Robico because they really uh, invested in the company and brought more assets, brought access to new markets. So it turned out very well, but uh, it was it was not. Uh, you know, our will to sell Sam. So, and then when you say you found a very um, good partner, presumably that was very important to you because this was, as you say, a kind of, you wanted to make finance more sustainable. You didn't want to just sell it to someone who would dismantle it and sell down the part. Yeah, absolutely. I I spoke to, I don't know, five or six uh, banks, also some very, very large banks here in Switzerland. Uh, if they would have been the buyer, the company would not exist anymore. So Robico was a perfect partner for us because we brought something to them which they, they didn't have and then vice versa. They invested into the company. They brought their private equity business here to Zurich uh, to make it more sustainable. So it, it was really great. And, and in addition, uh, you know, I also underestimated that, but that's very important. That's a cultural aspect. 
Swiss people get along very well with Dutch people. Uh, and so I think that's very, very important. Uh, it might might be different with other cultures, but with the Dutch people, I think it's it's running very well. And you were also, you were a pioneer of sustainability indices. You launched um, your one with Dow Jones, um, I think in the early 2000s, was it? I mean, obviously, this is something that's really, really picked up. ESG index tracking funds are really popular now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you reflect back on that, I mean, do you think they're successful at encouraging more sustainable business models? There's been a lot of criticism about the big passive fund managers and whether they're engaging enough um, at the shareholders meetings and the voting. I mean, it's interesting with this index because it was not launched uh, from a business, uh, you know, economic perspective. It was launched because we had a problem that the market did not believe in, in our positioning. The market believed that the more sustainable you are, uh, the, the lower the return is. And, and our proposition was the opposite, right? So we had to, to prove that. And the idea to prove that was that we created an index because an index is something people know very well. They look every evening, is the Dow up or down? So it was more a communication tool. Uh, and it turned out, at least in the first phase, uh, to go in a different direction than what we than what we thought. I mean, we thought uh, it's a great uh, instrument for the financial markets, but it turned out to be that the, 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 the most of the interest was generated from corporates, because we were measuring uh, McDonald's, General Motors, and all those companies, and and gave them rankings. And they really were surprised by that because the name of Dow Jones was also on that index. So we had a lot to do with engaging with corporates and explaining them what we're doing. And I think that was that was a great development from a, let's say, from an impact perspective, because we had impact. And then you decide that once you've sold out of sustainable asset management, you sold it to Rebecca, it's then Rebecca Sam, you decide that you're going to launch Global Balance Bank, a sustainable focused private bank. So when you've done asset management before, why do private banking next? Because it's a bit easier. It's a bit simpler. I mean, uh, to convince CalPERS, uh, you know, or such a big institutional investor that they should invest with you, you know, that's really tough, especially for a young company that does sustainable investing. So, I mean, first we thought, oh, you know, private investors, that's a great and big market. Uh, and it's untapped. So there is no bank that is really like the Tesla in that industry. So that was one reason. And the other reason was, I mean, we came from, from, from let's say, the, the Champions League. I mean, asset management is more difficult from an asset management perspective than, than wealth management. And I think that, that, that really gave us uh, enough uh, confidence that we could do that. But we have been extremely naive because we had zero customer i mean we know every pension fund that invested sustainable but we had no private individual uh we have never done that before nobody of the team so we really had to build it up from scratch and again it took a bit uh, longer than what uh, was in our business plan and you mentioned a little bit earlier about you had to learn from when you sold uh, sustainable asset management, you had to learn about who your investors are and how important this is. So then how did you structure Globe Balance differently so that that couldn't happen again? Yeah. So first of all, we said never give up, give up majority of the company. 
because if you give up maturity, then you have a risk that you know the shareholders will you know make something else. So that was one very rule that we took out of the same experience. And the other one was that we really uh, we had we had three criteria for our investors. So before a shareholder was accepted in a company, we said uh, we're going to screen them on those three criteria uh, and make sure that we have kind of a community of investors. And today, Low Balance has about um, 60 external shareholders, not one company. Every every body is a private individual. Uh, and uh, we had last year our 10 years anniversary, and it, it was like a big family. So they have to the same value set. It's not only about money. Yes, we, we need to be successful as a company, but they also want to to change something, to to have impact. And and so that's really great to see to see that community. I think also on ownership, in terms of, I guess, the sense that for sustainability to be meaningful, it has to be long term. There's a bit of debate as to the nature of so many companies being run with an eye on quarterly results and how this is so dictated by being a listed company and your shareholders want an increase in earnings every single quarter. Do you think that being majority owned by yourselves and not being majority owned by a load of index funds or something or a lot of outside investors maybe helps you focus on sustainability more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's interesting. You know, when we when we sold to Robico, we had a period of three years earnout. So there was a formula for the shares for the next three years, and everybody in the company knew that uh, the exit in three years will be based on the formula. Uh, and it changed the mindset of, 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 of many people. They were just looking at this, at this formula. And they wanted to have uh, you know, the formula influencing the business strategy. And so this short-termism is, is, you know, it's embedded in the system if, if you have a stock price that is, you know, listed every day. Uh, and, and so I, I think, you know, if you look at the really successful companies, uh, they have the luxury of not being listed. And, and uh, it, it has, you know, in my view, a very substantial uh, impact on the culture and therefore on, 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 on the vision of a, of a, of a company. And so some of the private banks which have, some of the very large private banks have announced very high profile moves towards sustainability. And for example, Jay Safra Sarazan has hired your former Rebecca Sam colleague, Daniel Wilde, as its chief sustainability officer. As you say, there are a lot of moves like this with people who have backgrounds in sustainability moving into mainstream financial institutions. Mm -hmm. How do you compete when bigger private banks are expanding their ESG offerings? Mm -hmm. uh I think, you know, we are uh, also servicing other banks. So Globalance is offering their offerings to other private banks, not to the very large one, but to mid-sized banks. Uh, and we had a very intense discussion internally, should we do that? Because they have the same kind of portfolios as Globalance has. And our sales guys were not really happy when we when we said, no, we're going to do this uh, because we, do, we want to disrupt ourselves before somebody else will do that. And, you know, to give you an answer on, on your question, I think uh, we're a pure play. Everybody in the company, when he starts in the morning, is thinking sustainable investing. That is not the case with the banks that you just uh, listed. 
they have other departments. This is just part of the business. They have some conflict as well. Uh, and so it's like BMW. I mean, BMW currently is not able to, to make the same kind of electric cars as Tesla, because in Tesla, every employee is working on electric cars. Um, and so I think that that really makes a difference is if 100% of the employees are focused on that, you're being faster, you have more purpose, uh, you know, people are more motivated because they don't have other, you know, distraction. Um, yes, they will become better. But I mean, talk to a CRM of Globalance and talk to a CRM of, of a large bank and you will see the difference uh, in terms of quality, in terms of commitment, if, in terms of know-how. Uh, it will take some time before they are there. Do you drive yeah. a Tesla? I'm I'm a great I'm a great uh, customer of this company. They have I mean the I, I was an Audi driver and you know from a quality perspective you know maybe that's the better car, but the product is is much better what uh, Tesla is delivering. And you see yourselves as the Tesla of private banking? Maybe not quite <laughs> as large yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think also uh, when I uh, spoke to, when I spoke to you in 2020, you said that banks need to be more like Spotify in terms of delivering customer experiences. How do you deliver that as a sustainable private bank? What does what's a sustainable good customer experience? Yeah, I mean, I don't know when we when we were talking 2020. Was it before November or after November? I think you did mention your Globalance okay. world. Um, so that's, yeah, offering. that's, we launched that in 2000, in November in 2020. And that's an example. I mean, the reporting of the banking is so uh, boring. I mean, it's absolutely not inspiring for the customer how the banks uh, report what they're doing, right? I mean, we're investing, we're investing in companies, in solutions. But if you look at the bank statement today, this is not coming out there. So that's something we wanted to create with Globalance World, really create a world where an investor can, can uh, really experience, you know, what is my portfolio doing on, on the planet and what's my impact? And so that, that can be one direction. And in the meantime, we have developed many different uh, derivatives out of, that, uh, out of that visual tool like a special magazine. So every customer of, of ours of Globalance at the year end, it doesn't get this, this, this number uh, report, but it's, it's a customized magazine that we take out of, of this uh, Globalance world. So I think uh, there's a lot to do for, for banks in the, in the inter interaction and communication with, with, with investors. Do you view this as something that's going to become a really pivotal battleground almost between the kind of emergence of neobanks and banks that actually have an office and customer advisors you can go and see in person? Um, I mean, I see, you know, I see the, the whole digital banks, right, which have, which don't have an office. Uh, and I see the, the, the very traditional banks, which still, you know, have their lunch meetings with their customers. Uh, I think if you really have a substantial amount of money to invest, probably you will not do that via the web. Uh, you need a person to trust. I mean, our average customer has, has 2.5 million uh, with us. 
And if you have such an amount, I don't think that you will just go to to an online platform and send them their money, unless you're a self-driven investor and 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 make your decision by yourself. But but to to give a bank a discretionary account, I think it's very important uh, that that you have a physical interaction. So I think this this combination uh, will become much more important. So that they have digital solutions, digital assets. But you know, if markets are becoming difficult right now, people don't want to talk to a machine. They 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 would like to know from from you know from a specialist you know, how he sees the development of the market. Okay. And then, you know, you talk about your average client assets being, I think you said, two and a half million there. I mean, as someone who presumably is quite motivated to make sustainability more mainstream, do you ever sit there and think, well, it would be nice to offer more of these services to people who had less money? Yeah, absolutely. That's one objective we have. And and, then, I mean, we will have to find a... A partner in order to do that because that is very cost intense from a technical perspective because you need to build up a technical platform but also from a marketing perspective so i think uh, we have an ecosystem where more and more uh, you know firms work together and so we could be a great partner for an online bank as an example that can have a you know a very cost effective execution for for smaller investors so that's something we are we are looking for uh, to explore whether there might be a, a, you know, a partner for the segment of smaller investor where we could add some value with our ESG uh, knowledge to to his offering. Yeah, and I know you said earlier um, you've said that you like to be entrepreneurs and not managers. What does that mean in practice, both in the longer term vision of Glow Balance, but also in the day to day way that the bank operates? I mean, it it it, it means uh, it means a world. I mean, it means that you you can be extremely fast uh, because yeah, you, you can take the decision by yourself because it's 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 your money, it's your company, uh, it's your investment, it's your risk. So uh, you're much faster. I think you can you can take more uh, more risks. I mean, I perceive the culture in the banks as very very risk averse. Nobody wants to make a mistake, but in today's world, you you need to explore and make mistakes. I think that's more the entrepreneurial element. Uh, so I think in the, what what Tesla has achieved in 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 such short period of time is is only possible with entrepreneurs. I don't think it would be possible with with managers. So and 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 our world is changing more in the context of being fast, of of being innovative, and and I think that's a great uh, outlook for for entrepreneurial people. Okay, and how do you incentivize sustainability in your employees? Do you tie pay to sustainability goals? I mean, first of all, it's it's the it's the DNA, it's a purpose. So, I mean, we don't have a sustainable strategy and a non-sustainable strategy. So, uh, everything we do, whether it's the the investment portfolio, whether it's uh, the travel policy, whether it's uh, how we treat customers, or or so, should be sustainable. So, we have a lot of discussions what that means because you know this is all still very subjective and and open and there's no standard so i think that that's really how we 
reward people to be part of that discussion, to be part of, of the development, how we define that. And, uh, you know, we, we also measure that. So we measure the portfolio with Low Balance World and, and give the customers transparency. And, and that, that transparency leads to pressure. So, I mean, if our portfolios today is our 2.2 degrees of global warming, customers would like to go 1.5 in about two years. So, I mean, transparency triggers really uh, a desire to improve. And, and so that makes us a better company as well. Most of the discussion about ESG investing, at least from what I think I have perceived, has been mainly about how we're going to take the assets that we have and invest them sustainably. How much do you think it's incumbent upon banks to be picky about the assets they accept themselves from their clients? Or do you think that, in fact, no matter where the money's from, as long as it's legal, it's good to change that into sustainable money? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, if you would have money from, let's say, a source, let's say from a from a from an oil owning uh, family uh, and we can invest that sustainably, I think that would be OK because you know, we're living in a world that is changing. We're living in a world that comes out of a maybe dirty history and that wants to move in a, in a, in a more cleaner future. And that needs time and that needs reflection. And I mean, I'm in that field since 25 years and only since about, I don't know, four or five years, uh, this industry has an interest. 20 years, there was no interest. So this is a, one generation. So I have become very humble when it comes to timing. I mean, you know, this change that is ahead of us in terms of a more sustainable, uh, you know, economy, more sustainable uh, processes and so on, this really takes time. Okay. And um, so you also, you said earlier, you think big banks don't understand climate change mm -hmm. yet. What are the implications of them not understanding climate change yet? And when do you think they might actually start to understand climate change? I mean, they start to understand it right now because they're hiring people, they're hiring analysts, they do analysis on, on let's say, uh, a bond uh, that is uh, being issued by a utility in, in, in Italy. And in, in Italy, it's getting warmer. And so the utility in Italy might, might have an issue in capacity because, you know, when it gets warmer, then they cannot cool down the, the rivers and so on. So I think this this is starting to happening. And, and that's that's the amazing part. I mean, I, I see so much money flooding into that sector uh, and, and everybody is doing that. And, and with that, they have more pressure to do that. I mean, if you look at all the announcement of all the corporates that they want to become uh, net zero in, I don't know, five, 10 years, you know, this is marketing, right? So they have made announcements without really thinking, okay, what would that mean for us? But now they have to deliver. So they have to hire people. They have to invest in new technologies. They have to innovate. They have to change their processes. I think that's the exciting part. So I was at a panel at the Finanzmesse in Zurich um, last week where one of the panelists was talking about how so many companies have very lofty targets for 2050 we're going mm -hmm. to be net zero and all of this. And they were saying from his perspective that he thought it was much more valuable to have shorter term, less ambitious targets that they were moving 
towards now. I mean, do you think a lot of these long-term targets are a bit too little, too late? If you're not even going to start trying for ten years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we have lost so so much time. Uh, I mean, to recognize that we have a problem. Uh, and if you don't recognize that you have a problem, then you don't act. So the, this recognition of the problem came up, I don't know, a couple of years ago. So it really takes time to, to change the mindset, uh, to change technology, to change value chains. I mean, this this takes time. And, and, and I agree, maybe it's much smarter to, to take, uh, you know, credible uh, objectives because I think there will be a big, big disappointment from, from let's say, the consumer, from the society, if those companies cannot hold their commitments. Uh, and there's a high risk that now there is over-promise and under-delivery, and that's not a good development if, if, if there is a disappointment on the credibility of all those sustainable statements. A lot of people saying climate neutral by 2050 and then if you go and read the news i read an article in the the guardian that said the climate disaster is already here i'm not a climate scientist i can't tell you whether the climate disaster is already here but there certainly seems to be a discrepancy between the immediate sense that some of these climate scientists seem to have and the way people are pledging things for 30 25 years in the future i mean do you think this is too little too late oh, absolutely i mean look look what is happening right now in india uh, with the temperatures and what impact it has on, on, on the people, on the food production, on the economy. Uh, so, I mean, this is already in, in the planet, right? And that's, that's what we did 20 years ago. Uh, and what we did 10 years ago and what we do today will, will just be in, 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 in the atmosphere in the next 10 years. And, and we're still, you know, discussing whether we should invest more in renewable and who should do it and how we, how we allocate the costs. Uh, so I think, you know, I always use the example of, uh, of a concept in psychology called the four rooms of change. I don't know whether you know that concept. I admit I do not know much about okay. psychology. So, I mean, if you have a problem, then you have to go through four rooms and that's called the four rooms of change. So the, four, the first room is the room of happiness. So everything is great. You just fell in love and then, you know, the world is so, so great. And then you could, you know, um, you're really happy. Uh, and then your girlfriend is coming to you and say, mm, you know, I'm not so happy anymore. We should change a couple of things and have more you know, whatever. And then you're in the room of denial, right? So you just deny the problem. Uh, and then your girlfriend is, is, is gone and then you're by yourself and then you really realize, oh, okay, I have a problem now. And then you're in the room of confusion because you don't know the solution yet. And the fourth room is the, the room of renewal where you find then a solution to your problem. And if you look at our, you know, positioning, we were we were for, I don't know, 20, 30 years in the room of denial. And some people still are. And now we are in the room of confusion and we will stay in that room for, I don't know, 10, 15 years because everyone has a different idea and we need to find a mutual solution because it's a global, it's a global threat. So this, this, will, this will take time. I have to say, you are the first private banker I've interviewed out of quite a few who's applied to become my psychologist, Rito. But that was very informative. Um, I uh, 
I also just noted that you talked earlier about the perils of the formula mentality in your final era at sustainable asset management and how that's something you didn't really want to replicate with your new venture. How do you get the formula mentality out of companies that you invest in, especially big listed corporations? Yeah, I think one thing is really uh, your focus. So, I mean, if, if every day you see your share price when you enter the building, as an example, then people are f- focused on the share price because that's what they see every day. If they see maybe a mountain, so we have a mountain, the, the, the Mount Sustainability, which we would like to climb. It's a very high mountain and, and up there are great portfolios or happy customers and things that, that we really aspire. So that's what we visualize. That's what we communicate. That's what we put into our uh, objective system. Uh, I think we focus much more on qualitative aspects then on we would like to have you know the profit of so much because that's the result um, but but i think uh, in in today's world when i interview people uh, for new positions uh, many many people say i'm looking for purpose i'm looking for purpose and and uh, so you have to deliver that as a company uh, what's your purpose and then they will deliver great results Do you think that the finance industry has a personnel issue in that it attracts people via its image who want to be rich? Whereas if you are recruiting for, say, Greenpeace, then you're probably going to attract people who wanted sustainability anyway. Absolutely. I mean, I was chairman of WWF Switzerland, uh, and, and that's exactly the opposite, right? I mean, there are people that want to save the planet, I mean, I must, I must say they have very, very skilled people, uh, very, very smart people, very dedicated. Uh, and their objective is really to save the planet. And, and, and in, in many, many banks, uh, many people just want to make as much money for themselves uh, as they can. So I think that's really, that's a challenge from a cultural perspective. How can you, how can you change that towards more sustainability, towards customer centrification and so on? You founded the bank in Switzerland, which has traditionally had a reputation for being a destination for those who want to hide their money for illicit purposes. Although their ability to do so in Switzerland has shifted somewhat with regulatory changes in recent years. Is this a chance for Swiss banking to get a new reputation? And why did you found the bank in Switzerland? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it can be an opportunity, uh, but it's also a challenge. And I had uh, the General Assembly of Club Balance Bank last week, and I showed uh, our shareholders a white sheet of paper. Uh, And we had, when we started Club Balance Bank, a white sheet of paper. And to have a white sheet of paper is an incredible competitive advantage because you can you can put whatever you would like on that white sheet of paper. I mean, the chairman and CEO of Credit Suisse today, they don't have a white sheet of paper, and for them it must be incredible difficult to you know whatever their objective is to achieve that, and that only goes by change. So I think on one side we don't have a white sheet of paper in Switzerland because we have our history and we have our culture. But on the other side, I think if we are really able to 
uh, you know, put away the, the other sheets and really think about, okay, you know, what, what could we build up in the future? Then that also could be an opportunity because we're a flexible country. Uh, we're a small, you know, community here. So, I mean, in theory, we, we, we could do that, but uh, it takes a couple of, of new minds uh, in order to do that. Mm-hmm.